at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, I guess, mid-break mid week between uh, TBT semis and the Final Four, or quarters. I don't know how that works. Quarters, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Syracuse, uh, and it's, you know, band of... Uh, of ragtag alumni decided to go and make the final four uh, in the basketball tournament. So that's something of news and noteworthy for us. Um, Dan, were you in attendance at the last game or just the, uh, the sweet 16 game? Uh, I was at both. I, I couldn't tweet anything from the last one because the, uh, well, there was just no cell service at all in the gym for certain people, myself included. And uh, on Thursday, uh, our good friend Andy Pregler had been nice enough to give me the Wi-Fi password, and uh, my phone didn't remember it. Uh, so and I forgot to ask him for it on Saturday. So I, I had to keep my thoughts until after the game. Um, but it was literally like, and it's so it's it's very goofy to say, considering it's like you know an exhibition tournament uh, featuring like alumni from different teams and like you know random rosters and whatnot. One of the most ridiculous, thrilling unbelievable basketball or sporting events I've been to. Uh, and again, like, it sounds weird to say it was like, you know, a bunch of us watching, you know, a ragtag team of SU alums at LIU Brooklyn in front of like 2000 people. But like, it really was one of the more incredible games I've been to. It, it was so, so crazy, especially like the initial like surge from down 25, I think was the, was the top end yeah. of like where they had us to down like, 13 I, I i had gone i think i went to the bathroom during a timeout we were down 25 and i came back and within four minutes i think we were down 13 i was like oh, oh. i mean i at that point i still didn't think like it was at all the way but once we got into single digits like i was pretty certain we would not at least have a, a dog fight down the down the stretch because that was just so ridiculous and the team looked so dead and then play just played such an incredible 10 minutes there to, to get back in and take the lead so um, really happy for them. Hopefully, we can upset uh, overseas elites, who I believe are the two-time defending champs of the whole thing yeah. uh, in Baltimore next week. Yeah, I mean, it is a testament to the guys on that team. You know, you look at this year's team. I think, well, no one's playing a ton of defense in this tournament. This year's team has some guys who are a little more capable defenders, especially in the paint. Um, you look at someone like Deshante Riley, uh, maybe a little bit of C.J. Fair, uh, Rick Jackson, obviously. Um, but, I mean, the shooters really have carried the day uh, with guys like James Sutherland and uh, Eric Devendorf uh, kind of channeling their, uh, their collegiate selves. Um, and, and I know, like, for, for SU haters, that might not be that fun. But for us, um, it's obviously kind of the highlight of the tournament is seeing these guys go out there and, and at least for, uh, for a couple hours play like they're, uh, they're, you know, 20 and 21 again. Yeah, I must say it was probably, and I think people made this joke, but it's, like, not really a joke at this point. Probably the best uh, moment for Deshante Riley as a Syracuse, you know, quote unquote player. <laughs> he played. He like I don't think he scored, but like he and and it wasn't like his stats were like incredible. He only had two blocks or whatever, but he played like such just really rock solid defense in the paint and rejected um, or altered so many shots at the hoop, and that was like a huge part of that comeback. So he deserves a lot of credit because and also Ryan Blackwell as coach. Like, I, I don't know, coaching in this tournament, like, could go either way. Like, you know, it, I feel like it's, it's far more roster-based than even regular basketball is, and rap basketball itself is, is very player-based. But um, sticking with that lineup that got them all the way back, uh, realizing that Rick Jackson was just not the answer down low against Marcus Kennedy and, and the rest of uh, TB, TBE's team, or uh, FOE, yeah, FOE, FOE, whatever, uh, the Marcus, the, the Kansas City team. Um, like, Rick just wasn't, wasn't doing it after, you know, a couple of really good games by him putting Deshante in there, uh, sticking with that lineup basically the entire second half until he pulled Dante for CJ, and I think he put Devendorf in for Trish, um, riding it with Gillen, who, you know, hadn't really played much the game before, so 
he actually, I thought there was actually some really good coaching on his part. He, he seen he wrote, he wrote the hot hand, and he, and the moves he did make in the second half uh, to try to keep the momentum going, uh, I think both worked pretty well. So, um, fun to see like you know different roster, different lineups, and, and mixing the roster and some some strategy, and hopefully they keep it going because it's uh, it's been a lot of fun as it was the first two years too. But to have them in the final four, I think is uh, is pretty special. Yeah, obviously, the more you win, the more these sort of situations, uh, you know, yield some good times. Um, I know you mentioned Deshante Riley's size. Like, how many other players, just for, you know, context, like, I've watched some of the games here and there, but I know, like, a lot of people aren't at the games or whatever. Um, For context, like, how many players really in this field at the start had the sort of size that Riley does and, like, like Rick Jackson does? Um, Not a ton. I mean, Deshante's got to be one of the tallest guys. I don't know how many true seven-footers... Um, there are in this whole thing, but he's obviously one, and then Rick uh, is just a, a monster down low. Um, I don't think the last game was a great matchup for him, but but you know there are other teams. I forget which game he had like eleven rebounds, and he was grabbing everything. Um, I think it was the Iona game, uh, which was obviously uh, pretty tenuous down the stretch. But without him grabbing boards, I, I, it would have you know probably been a loss. So um, I do like I like I think that's one of the really fun things is that everyone's played a pretty big role in at least one of these games, especially considering. Uh, the last three have all been uh, have all been thrillers, um, and it seems like everyone's had their moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it can't be understated how much team ball has really contributed to these guys. You know, a lot of them have played together. A lot of them have played on Beheim's Army together in, in the past. There's a lot of there's a lot of familiarity that, like, you would think automatically the alumni teams would be able to to create. But you know, for every team like Syracuse, actually for Syracuse is the only team like this, really, you know, unless you have like a Duke squad or something else. But all the familiarity with the systems and the type of coaching that they're all used to and, and playing for the same guy, um, even if not at the same time, like all these other teams, whether it's Marquette or, you know, guys at Kansas, guys at Pitt, these, these are guys who have played for different coaches and different systems and different types of teams. Like Syracuse has a consistency level that I think does lend pretty well to success here, even if this is the first year we're really seeing it like come together this deep into the tournament. Yeah, and it also, I, I think it probably helps a little bit that um, this is the first year where I think, I mean, not every, like, obviously, Devendorf didn't play with Gillen last year, but he, he did coach him, I guess. Right. Um, or Devo didn't play with, with Cooney. But um, all these guys have kind of have links to each other. Like, almost everyone on this roster, I think probably everyone on this roster played with someone else on this roster, except for maybe Gillen, because I think he was the only addition from last year's team. Right. Um, so, like, guys just have their, it's, it, there's definitely, like, built-in chemistry there versus, like, I think the first year we had, you know, Terrence Roberts playing with um, someone from, like, the oh, the 2010 team, and, you know, obviously these guys know each other, and I'm sure they've worked out together, but they didn't have, like, uh, chemistry like some of these, some of the, the lineups we throw out there now uh, do, which I'm sure helps a bit. And then, obviously, Bayheim's system hasn't really changed. Obviously, the offense looks different from year to year, here and there, but, you know, they're running... Um, yeah, you know, similar sets from year to year. Also, I really did enjoy the, the turning point here. Out of, out of after the the first you know tw- half plus well, however many minutes before the run started in the second half, the the offense just looked totally listless. And then they must have run that double high screen. Um, I think five or six times in a row and scored <laughs> every single time. Uh, where they either had Gillen penetrate or got it to or Trish or got it to Sutherland for a floater or a kickout, and it was just like. Seeing actual, like, good complex offensive basketball uh, in a tournament like this was pretty funny, too. Because, like, that was, you know, a pretty advanced play, and we ran it and got, like, multiple different looks off of it to great success. And that was, like, kind of the turning point there after not being able to score, basically, for the first 25, 30 minutes. I'll take it. Um, Dan, we'll definitely have to talk more uh, the basketball tournament next week. Um, timing's going to be, I think, right after... Um, the final four game for us. Yeah, the semifinals what Tuesday? I believe so. So we'll have we'll have plenty to, to discuss and hopefully maybe discussing another Bayheim's Army uh, victory. That'd be I think a pretty nice uh, summer surprise for everybody. I feel like we're destined to face that Ohio State team uh, in the <laughs> final. I don't want to jinx it. Like obviously overseas elites the two time defending champ. But that just feels like it would be kind of poetic justice, especially for guys like Trish and uh, Rick wasn't on that team. Sutherland was. Um, I'm sure Diva was throwing stuff at his TV wherever he was during it. Um, so 
Uh, and that team is like basically the entire team that beat us uh, in the Elite Eight that year. Oh, yeah. Um, so hopefully we get uh, some comeuppance for that one, even though obviously it's not quite the same as an Elite Eight game. Um, I'm sure the Syracuse fans. I, I loved also. I love the video of like the girl that was in the Syracuse fan like crying at the comeback. I'm like, <laughs> you know what? I don't know that that many other fan bases would have a like stack a gym like that for for an event like this. Um, like there were obviously the Ohio State alumni team, Marquette and Kansas ish. You know, it wasn't a true Kansas team, but similar. You know, well, mostly Kansas. Um, and none of those. Like I saw fans from all those teams, but like more than half the gym was Syracuse, and that's like including. You know, people who were just there for, for to watch some basketball, which was, I think, the most of the rest of the crowd was just general fans of the event. Um, it was really incredible, and I'm sure it'll be similar in Baltimore. Obviously, there's a lot of fans in the in the DMV. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the underrated part of all this too. Uh, obviously, like the fan voting is one part of of the basketball tournament, and that's how kind of the field gets set. But you know, the in person stuff, and especially because it's so East Coast centric. In a lot of ways, like that's where I think SU has a is a pretty big advantage, especially over um, you know some of the other programs that field um, alumni teams. Is just it's not just that we have a lot of fans in the in the Northeast area, but we have a lot of fans in those specific key cities um, that that really help us out. And obviously, you know SU is a is a, is a passionate fan base and one that travels really well for basketball. Um, we travel, I think, reasonably well for football, considering what we are. But basketball in particular, we. Uh, we definitely have a reputation as a pretty good group on the road. So it's nice to see that, uh, that reputation kind of proceed itself and then live itself out in, in, in what is basically an exhibition tournament. Right. And, and obviously the school can only, I mean, they've promoted it like maybe not the school directly, but like the alumni clubs have promoted it a bit, but it's not like you have the full power of whatever Syracuse uh, university behind it. So it's, it's really very grassroots, and the team has done, and Kevin Belby has done a great job promoting it. And I think it's actually, uh, I was talking to someone about this uh, recently. Like, I, I think this, our team just being in it the last couple of years has been huge for the, the tournament as a whole because um, of our fan support. And, you know, we're obviously one of the more recognizable uh, college programs that's like, fields like a true college team. Um, and I'm just getting people excited for that. I think, I think Bayham's Army's probably been the team that has had, like, the most hype around it um, heading into these last three years. So I, I think that uh, the whole tournament owes uh, a fair bit of credit to the Syracuse fan base and, and the Bayheim's Army uh, folks uh, for, for becoming as popular as, as it has. And, and it only seems like it's going to keep on going up, especially, you know, getting on ESPN and filling programming, which is always big. I, I do expect it to keep on, uh, keep on going because people do seem to be getting way into it. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, yeah, moving on from basketball to our favorite topic, football here. Um, Dan, I'm sure you saw some of the uh, SB Nation content today around uh, 2007. Um, obviously, I know you were not in college yet, but <laughs> uh, nonetheless, a college football fan, 2007, for those who might be unfamiliar for some reason, uh, is largely considered the greatest, weirdest, strangest, uh, most fun college football season that ever was. A lot of random teams were uh, in the top, you know, two to five. LSU is the you know only modern program with two losses to win the national championship. Uh, USF was number two for a while. Kansas was. Boston College was number two. Um, a bunch of other teams were hanging around the, the, the top of the polls um, in ways that we've never seen before and haven't seen since. Uh, so yeah, definitely a wacky. Um, Wacky season, one that Syracuse fans probably want to forget, uh, obviously. Uh, but I, I know I addressed the, the one the one highlight of that season um, on the blog today, and we can talk about that in a bit. Um, Dan, again, knowing that you know you were you were not yet in college at the time, wh- what are your maybe some of your lasting memories of the 2007 season uh, from the periphery, and obviously not being a member of the media as you are now? Um, my lasting memories. Um, I remember, I think the week USF was number two, uh, and I could be wrong on this, but I think this is how the timeline played out. Uh, US, USF was number two and they went up to Rensselaer field and lost to UConn, I think. Um, and UConn stormed the field, you know, and it was like full of mud because I had friends there and they were talking about that. Uh, and I think that same week or around that same week, BC was number one. I had actually had a chance to read all the SB Nation stuff. Um, I've been, I've had jury duty all week. Uh, so yeah, not, I've actually like been kind of cut off from the world. 
Um, I did see that they posted it, and I was like skimming some of the first couple, so I, I look forward to going through all of this uh, over the weekend, probably. Um, uh, I remember Pitt, West Virginia, which is one of the all-time great moments of total sh- uh, schadenfreude, uh, considering West Virginia almost definitely would have been in the national championship and lost to a wholly mediocre Pitt team in the in the one of the last editions of the of the backyard brawl. Um, I remember, uh, obviously, LSU, as you mentioned, was a two-loss two uh, two national champ. Uh, I remember that the first Nick Saban team lost to ULM that year, I think? Yes. Yeah, that was a thing that happened. Um, oh, my God. Uh, I mean, obviously, it, in terms of like recent news, uh, that's the year uh, Houston Nutt was fired, which kicked off a fun uh, set of events that led to Hugh Freeze being fired uh, last week. Um, while I was at the first uh, TBT game. Um, and uh, again, talking about Sch- uh, Schadenfreude, um, Houston Nutt, I mean, Lord, that guy needs, that guy is in some Hall of Fame now, and I'm not sure what it is. Pet- pettiness, um, no, pettiness, just vindictiveness. Like, there's, it, it is unbelievable that he, that he is at the center of all of that. And it started in 2007, because of course it did. He is the Woodward and Bernstein <laughs> of Mississippi. <laughs> Uh, Kansas went to an Orange Bowl. Um, and, and not only went to the Orange Bowl. Did they, they win it? They beat Virginia Tech in the Orange Bowl. <laughs> um, Virginia and, Tech and they've, uh, they've also didn't win the national championship. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can... Actually, as much as I was bummed that Pitt, that Pitt was able to get the win against West Virginia there, because at the time we were in that weird kind of limbo where like the Big East was taking on water, and the only way you could avoid that was if teams were good, so you found yourself like casually rooting for Rutgers and... like. West Virginia on random weekends just kind of sucked and it really was no indication of what, what rivalry is. Um, the fact that at the end of the day, it prevented West Virginia from, from even playing for a national championship and, and still shutting that program out from any national titles um, as a Syracuse fan. And now being a Syracuse fan that can, that doesn't have to worry about what the Mountaineers are doing every weekend. Um, it does bring some, some, some hindsight joy uh, to me and I'm sure many others um, who, who, who have no problem seeing the Mountaineers lose every game ever. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like I was kind of disappointed because I thought Western New was super fun that year, and I obviously didn't have my, my Syracuse animosity baked in yet. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, looking back, it's pretty hilarious. And I do wonder how things would have changed. Like, would West Virginia have been on the first train out had they had a national championship uh, under their belt? It's well, hypothetical. I know Matt Brown like addressed some of this. And talks about, you know, if if they had done that, like, even if they hadn't won the title that year against Ohio State, like, now you're a team that played for a national title. Like, we've talked about, like, kind of what these usurpers have done in the past and, like, how each year in the playoff there's been kind of like a team from the outside. They don't win it, but, like, West Virginia could have really, like, could have beaten Oregon to the punch and been, like, the first non-blue blood to really, like, get into that swing. And you look at what the Big East was like at that time like recruiting and probably is a huge uptick for West Virginia you know maybe Rich Rod stays and then when you know conference realignment comes around I mean they weren't getting a Big Ten invite but maybe the SEC decides differently maybe the SEC picks West Virginia instead of uh, Missouri despite the TV market conversation like maybe the ACC decides to bite the bullet and pick West Virginia over us um, you know in 2012 like these are things that could have theoretically happened and West Virginia could have could have turned itself into a mini miniature power on par with, you know, an Oregon or a Baylor or a TCU even. Yeah, it's super interesting to think about. I think um, I'm looking through the SB Nation pieces. I'm just on the sideline. Uh, was that also that was also the Gundy ran apparently, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is great. I thought that was a little earlier actually, uh, pre mullet. Um, there are so many great stories from that year. Um, my favorite one. I can't believe I like forgot this quote. Was was the quote from uh, from Owen Schmidt. Uh, about the West Virginia Pitt game, where I don't remember this. Where after the game, Owen Schmidt from from West Virginia says, uh, "We blew it against the shittiest fucking team in the fucking world." <laughs> was was his quote talking about? Was he bleeding team? from the forehead during it? Maybe, because that's like all I ever know about Owen Schmidt is he was always bleeding. Yeah, he. Uh, I, I remember that part of it, but yeah, I didn't remember that quote. Um, and then luckily, um, SB Nation brought that up today, 
um, in multiple places. So I was very glad to hear that one because I would agree. Um, that pit team was bad. Um, they weren't as bad as we were, but but they were bad. That, no, that's I, I Also, that was the App State year. That was um, the App State year. And also, Hawaii went to the Sugar Bowl and uh, then lost by a million to Georgia. Well, I mean, it was basically a road game. But yeah, Hawaii... Hawaii will I mean, it didn't, that game could have been played uh, in a volcano in Hawaii and Georgia would have won. But, um, well, Hawaii was long held up as like the, the reason why, um, you know, teams were... The reason why the, B, the non-BCS programs at the time were, net, were not... Should not be, be given like a seat at the table to compete for the national title. That... that that, that one entry point was as good as it's going to get. Now, obviously, Boise State kind of turned that on, on its head um, in some ways because of the, you know, the famous Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma, which is still one of my favorite games I've ever watched, and I'm sure you would probably agree there too. Like, but Hawaii was always kind of held up as like the, well, look at the schedule and look at the, the I mean, at the time, like they were running sort of an air raid type system. Like, you know, look, look at this offense, look at this schedule. Like, there's just no way in hell and I think, you know, in some ways, like, people are... I think the G5 is still paying for that Hawaii game, unfortunately. It certainly doesn't help. And it also, like, almost lines up to, like, Hawaii's crazy struggles for a while after that. I mean, obviously, Nick Rolovich has done a really good job, um, at, you know, in his first year there. And he's we talked about them a decent amount in that episode. The uh, But um, it feels like that was kind of... Uh, a very obviously a very high watermark for that program, and it kind of fell sharply after that. To look at the year by year records, um, at the same time, it was also aside from the uh, SEC championship disaster a couple of years later, um, probably the best mark for Georgia team, and yeah. they finished third, I think, uh, which was very very Georgia of them. Yeah, Rick, and we've talked about Rick before, um, and I know I've mentioned him in the comments a bit. People are talking about Miami, but. You know, Richt is just... Richt is going to be so underrated by Georgia fans pretty much forever. I mean, no matter what Kirby Smart does, just because, yes, he had a lot of talent, and this is what the conflict always is, is he had a lot of talent, he had a lot of local talent. Um, he had a very winnable SEC East for much of his time there because he showed up, you know, after Tennessee's heyday. Um, Florida obviously had, um, you know, a nice period in there, but... There was a stretch before and after Urban Meyer where Florida really wasn't operating at full tilt. Like, Georgia sh could have and should have won the SEC East far more times than they actually did. And most of his best seasons are kind of front-loaded into his, his, his lengthy tenure over at Georgia. And that's kind of why I think, you know, he, the bad rap developed, uh, you know, internally. I, I think I think Rick and Les Miles are probably the two most, like, the two firings that probably made sense as it made a lot more sense internally than they ever did externally. I think like a lot of folks looked at both of those programs and both of those firings, you know, from outside and, and said, well, like, what the hell is going on here? And, and that doesn't mean that, that the firings were right because of what the folks internally thought. But just to point out, like sometimes there's a cognitive dissonance between, you know, what, what fans expect over time inside of the fan base and what they, what outsiders might see as, you know, a reasonable benchmark for a program. Yeah, and that SEC East was, like, kind of the problem because uh, Florida hadn't really gotten it going yet. Um, but Tennessee had, like, one of their last really good years under Phil Fulmer that year, and they blew out Georgia 35-14, I'm looking now. And I kind of forgot the other game that kept them out was, I believe it was Spurrier's first South Carolina team, um, maybe his second, uh, but they ended up going... No, it's his second South Carolina team. Um, and they only ended up going sits and sits. Or actually, third. I forgot Spurrier was there as long as he was. Third South Carolina team. Significant amount of time. 2004. I thought I thought he started a little later. Um, so it was his third South Carolina team. Before they were actually good, um, they went six and six that year, but one of those six wins was beating Georgia in week two, 16 to 12. And that game uh, would have, I mean, assuming that Georgia would have, you know, uh, they probably might have had to win the SEC title to know, but Georgia would have had uh, play, basically an SEC title playing game for the national championship. And instead they lost to a 500 South Carolina team in week two, uh, something that George did all the time with Spurrier <laughs> in Columbia. Like, how many Week 2 losses to South Carolina did, did Rick have? Well, I feel like four or five. <laughs> with that, with, without, like, diving into that, and I feel like that might be something for our SEC episode next week, I can definitely look that information up. But, I, yeah, I feel like you're right. I feel like those losses to South Carolina in particular, even more than, like, the, the cocktail party losses, 
um, could have could have been some of his biggest problems. I think it was Spurrier. I think Spurrier said uh, before, maybe like one of the one of the last good Spurrier South Carolina years. He said something like, uh, "I love playing Georgia early in the year because you know they'll have at least like six guys suspended, <laughs> and <laughs> also not unfair." <laughs> Spurrier, just such a sick Baron. You're so good at those. <laughs> I miss him. It's too good. Um, so yeah, I guess for the last few minutes before halftime, uh, we talked about the 2007 Syracuse. Now, Dan, how familiar are you with, with with the game in question? Sorry, which game were we talking? The Louisville game? Syracuse, at the time, the largest upset in Vegas history. Syracuse was a 37.5-point underdog for some reason against a number 17 Louisville team on the road. Um, they won the game. I still don't know how, and I watched the entire thing. Um, it was like the one and only game of any acclaim that Andrew Robinson ever played. Um, I now have his jersey in my home. <laughs> I actually that, that age that aged well. <laughs> no, I actually I didn't get it then. I actually got it last year. Andy uh, went to the yard sale thing and picked it up and picked me up a jersey, <laughs> and it ended up it was Andrew Robinson's jersey from. Um, from when he was, I don't know which year exactly, but from his time there. Um, I mean, the jerseys were the same, 07, 08. Um, it could have very well been if it wasn't white, or was it white or blue? That was a white jersey. Oh, so he might have worn it at that Louisville game. I, th- I He might have, because honestly, like, it's definitely a quarterback jersey too, like, because the, the sleeves are pretty, like, tight. So it's definitely, definitely game worn. Um, I know, I always, I, I've told this Andrew Robinson story before, uh, where one, for some reason, my roommates were like convinced I looked like him for like a week sophomore year. But anyway, um, senior year, me and my, my two best friends ran into him at Chuck's. Um, and at the time, you know, Andrew Robinson was like a third string tight end. Um, ran to him at Chuck's. We started talking to him a little bit, just talking about, you know, kind of the, the good old days, quote unquote, of, uh, of our sophomore year. Because he was the same age as us. Um, and then... Uh, my buddy who used to play football in high school, you know, goes, man, I miss playing football. And, uh, and Andrew Robinson takes a, a shot of whiskey and then goes, yeah, me too. And this was, <laughs> and this was in the middle of his senior season. I mean, how many snaps did he play? I think he played some specials that year, but like, that's all, that's all he did senior year. Yeah, it wasn't, I mean, he, he, you had the dad red Paulus on campus. How could he? Well, it was that he had. I mean, because he wait was this oh wait or this was oh nine right? This, this is his was final nine. So yeah, so Paul's was there and Nassim. And, and then oh wait, oh wait, he lost the Cam Dantley, which is yeah. oh god. <laughs> He'll always Although, have Notre Dame. <laughs> we will always have Notre Dame. Still, well, it'll be hard to unsee Notre Dame as one of my favorite Syracuse games ever. Um, shout out to to Greg Robinson. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I so, put, so classy. I put on the blog today, just like NSFW, like next to Greg Robinson's photo on the front page. Felt like it was appropriate that that on Sean Cayley's birthday that we had a picture of Greg front and center. Yeah. So to answer your original question, I I never watched the 07 Louisville game. I am aware of it, obviously, it's because on YouTube of the, in full. I, I don't have any real urge to do that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, yeah, I know it was like a, we were like 35 point underdogs and one on the road. And all I really know of the Syracuse 07 season, aside from the fact they went 2 and 10, and I was fairly certain heading into my freshman year they were going to be pretty bad again, um, was I remember I was playing football at the time, my senior year in high school, and we were on the bus up to a fairly far road game. And it was a week after I think Greg, uh, Robinson had elected to punt on third down like multiple times. Oh, yeah. And I just remember my coach making fun of him for it. He's just, he was that trash. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I also mentioned this in the piece that I wrote up. Um, the DO, and I wish I could remember who wrote it, um, because he's probably being paid a decent amount to write about sports today, um, wrote that, uh, that this was the, the kind of, this was the win that was going to validate the, the Robinson tenure and was going to turn everything around. We were 1-0 in the Big East, and we were probably going to the Orange Bowl and all sorts of crap. And like, it was just... It, like, in hindsight, like, the most college newspaper thing that could have possibly ever been written. <laughs> oh, that's great. 
it's, it was d- delightful. Um, <laughs> and on that note, um, halftime, Dan, since I'm sure everyone will be looking for drink recommendations since I took them down the, uh, the primrose path that is 2007 Syracuse football. Yeah, I read in the comments on one of the pieces, and uh, they all they all seemed to really enjoy it. <laughs> they were all thrilled that you had done that. The, the site was founded on on bad football, and it's it's going to die that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, beer. Um, sorry, I was pausing because I had accidentally clicked out of Untapped, but I have it open. Okay. Uh, so let's see. I had. Uh, I don't think I had anything brand new. But I did have uh, some old favorites. I had both the grapefruit and pineapple stulpins from Ballast Point. Um, grapefruit because I always do, and pineapple because I hadn't had. I had it like once, and I hadn't had it in a while. So my friend was picking up beer, and I asked, and he said that was there. So it's like, all right, we'll try that again. And it's it's good. It's not as good as grapefruit, but it's a solid beer. Um, I think it was actually it's I liked fresh. it more the second time. Yeah, I feel like this was fairly fresh. Like, it, I remember it was more pineapple-y this time, and I mean that in a good way. Because I remember the first time I had it, it, like, didn't really get the, the flavor. Um, so, But it's still, like, a really solid IPA, if nothing else. Um, I had uh, Space Dust from Elysian, um, which happened to be at Dwayne Reed, which has, like, random beers from all over occasionally. Like, occasionally I'll go in there, and there'll be nothing I like. And then sometimes I'll go in there, and there'll be, like, some really... Like, that's where I have, like, the six, random six-pack of... Uh, of uh, Brooklyn, uh, the Saison okay. that you generally, like, I forget which one, uh, Sriracha Ace. Like, they, they have, oh, sometimes they just have a random, like, sit pack of something awesome, and I don't ever know why. Uh, so that was there. So I picked up uh, some space dust, which isn't the hardest thing to find, but enjoyable. Um, I had uh, some blueberry ale from Blue Point, which is fine. Uh, Blue Point, none of Blue Point stuff is my favorite, but it's, it gets the job done. Um, had some Purple Haze by Abita, something I drink a fair amount of, um, which is always good. And uh, I had uh, Workers' Comp Saison from Two Roads up in Connecticut uh, tonight, uh, which uh, I hadn't had in a while. Most of the Two Roads stuff I get is uh, more IPAs, but their Saison is quite good. So uh, they have some new stuff I haven't had a chance to get because I'm not in Connecticut nearly as much as I used to be. Um, but I've heard I need to get it back up there because they have like some some new new brews that are supposed to be really legit. So hopefully I can get, grab some of those uh, in the next couple weeks when I uh, pass through the state at some point. Yeah. I mean, they were interesting the one time I visited. Uh, my, my brother used to live in Bridgeport for a bit. Um, I stopped in there, and uh, he and I enjoyed it. We hung out in the tasting room for a couple hours. Definitely a cool spot. Yeah, they do a lot of events and stuff up there. It's just, just far enough away from the city now where it's like kind of a hassle to get there, but... Right. Uh, I've enjoyed it like the couple, the three or four times I've gone up. Yeah, I think it's what like a good like forty-five minutes to an hour train ride. It's a Bridgeport-ish area. Uh, from the city, it's probably more close to like an hour and a half. Um, yeah, it's it's like a thirty-minute drive from Stanford, where I'm from. So it's it's not too bad if I'm already up there. Right. Um, but it's tough if you're like just making a trip for that. Makes sense. All right, things that I have drank. Uh, Went out for happy hour last Friday. Had some Blind Pig IPA from Russian River. Um, had some Founders Rubeus. Looking for something a little uh, on the fruitier side. Had a uh, this new bar down in Hermosa Beach. Uh, had a San Diego Pale Ale 394 from Ale Smith. Um, had a uh, Divine Reserve number 15 from St. Arnold. It's a Russian Imperial Stout, barrel aged. Uh, from Scorched Earth Brewing. Had the uh, Bitter Chocolatier. Had the uh, Pop Fuji uh, unfiltered Pilsner from uh, Browridge West over here um, that I had from the brewery uh, Goes as a Red, which is a clever name and also a pretty good beer. Um, from Celador, I had the uh, Fire Gold Saison with uh, Mandarin Quats. It was pretty good. And then I had a uh, Surly uh, Furious IPA, and that was that was all I drank. It wasn't a... It wasn't a huge drinking weekend for me, admittedly, but th- this coming one will be. My, my parents are in town, so have to have to show them around all the local haunts. Very nice. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right. So the actual purpose of this podcast, because, you know, we, we try to give you what you want in the first half and then disappoint you in the second. Um, Pack 12 we are talking about my favorite non-ACC conference, and maybe yours too, Dan. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite. Well, actually, it might be. <laughs> um, 
it's among the more, most consistently fun. So, I mean, the Big 12 has been, been right there, but uh, I think the Pac-12 is probably a little more likable. Yeah. Um, and it gives you something to do at, like, uh, 1 in the morning on Saturday. <laughs> or for me, 10 p.m. Yeah, see, I don't know. Like, I, I, get, I kind of appreciate that, but I, I kind of enjoy having the late night because uh, I'm, like, you know, usually too tired from work or whatever to go out. So I'm like, I'm just going to watch some more football, and that's where the Pac-12 is there for me until... And then occasionally the uh, super late night Hawaii game, and then I get to go to bed. So if I'm doing a full night of college football, I kind of like having the late, late Pac-12. Yeah, for me, the late, late is Hawaii. But even here, like, Pac-12 games, super high scoring, they go on for hours. You start one of those at 7, 7.30 kickoff, and you're, uh, you're still probably going at, like, you know, 11, 11.30. That's all I need after, after waking up at 6 a.m. for game day every Saturday. That's fair. If I had to wake up at six, I'd probably be less enthusiastic about <laughs> about staying up till three or whenever the Hawaii games usually end. If if those are on, I feel like those are usually like two or three. Right. Yeah, you know, wake up at six, planning for the Syracuse game that's almost definitely at noon. Then knowing I have to rewatch whatever the hell happened again later that week <laughs> becomes a bit much. But anyway, on to the Pac-12. Um, there are a lot of fun teams this year, um, two in particular that I think are worth leading off with, uh, USC and Washington. Um, for those who lived under a rock during last season, Washington went from this kind of you know middling Pac-12 team that they've been for what feels like a couple decades now um, to a sudden power uh, guided by a former Boise State coach, Chris Peterson. They've recruited well. They haven't recruited a championship level. I think they've recruited probably around a top 30, 35 level. Um, that's not going to get you a title. Uh, you can ask Michigan State, Oregon, a bunch of others about that. But um, Washington does seem to be on the upswing, and that is, to me, really fun for the Pac-12. I mean, I've I've enjoyed the kind of uh, Oregon-Stanford uh, hegemony thing they got going on for a long time, but uh, it, it's fun to introduce you know Washington, the traditional power of those three, um, into the mix as well, especially if it's at the uh, at the disadvantage of the Ducks, in my mind. Yes, I'm not surprised. Although, <laughs> do you feel any differently about Oregon with Willie Taggart there? Uh, I know, like, your problem wasn't really Helfrich or even uh, Chip Kelly, but I do wonder if, like, a possible... I don't, I don't expect them to look that. I think they're still going to run, like, an up-tempo, See, not the same offense, about, obviously. I, yeah, I don't care about the system or anything. For me, it's just the fans. They're just garbage. <laughs> like they're just they're just garbage nouveau reach fans who like talk a hell of a lot of smack for a team that's never really done anything. Uh, that's fair. I do wonder. Like I, I think we kind of like understand how uh, coaching uh, tenures can influence fandoms, and I do wonder if things change just because they they're going to get like rustled out of their their safe uh, you know system of of coaches you know that coaching lineage. So I wonder if like. Tag just a new, a completely new staff being there will like kind of make things different because obviously, almost all of Oregon's modern success has come in the same um, three coach uh, lineage as as you know as we said from. Um, I always forget who was uh, died the name. Yes, Bloody, who got, took over I think in like the early to mid nineties, um, to Chip Kelly to even before that I think um, coach before Bloody. Uh, Passed it over to him, right? I think so. Yeah, I, I think I remember like when they fired uh, Helfrich. I think SB Nation had a story that like they hadn't hired a coach like it was since seventies. Yeah, they hadn't. Yeah, it had been like decades. And I mean, it was Rich Brooks, so it was a fairly big name too. Yeah, for for them, um, like it's a for Oregon, it's an interesting dynamic. I think like their success story is is atypical of college football. It doesn't mean it's like some rags to riches thing. Like it was just a an ignored to riches thing because, you know, Nike decided to just pump every every dime into the program, and, and that's kind of you know if you're not going to exist in a recruiting powerhouse area, uh, if you're not going to have elite level coaches, you're not going to have elite level talent. Um, you know, the only way in to you know kind of semi blue blood status, I think Oregon achieved for at least a limited time, um, you know, is just an influx of cash. Uh, but you know, you go around Oregon, you go around Portland, like. I mean, people live and breathe that program now, and, and that's that's awesome for them. But, uh, you know, I've – as a fan of a lot of teams that lose, um, I, I will always encourage all fans to be just 
be conscious of your place in the world and, and understand that, you know, just because you win something doesn't mean you're, you're the late 90s Yankees or the, the mid-90s Bulls or the mid-90s Cowboys or, or whatever other team or analogy you want to use. Like, you know, winning a conference championship or whatever doesn't really mean much. Like, you're, especially in college football where the same 15, 20 teams are your top contenders every year. Like, I mean, my I have had a lot of just negative opinions and interactions with Oregon fans. I just have not enjoyed being near them or just talking to this about the sport with them because they don't really know anything in my experience doesn't mean that that's the case with all of them but yeah Oregon fans in my experience have just been very very mouthy about you know their their place in the world compared to Stanford who again a program that's also accomplished more than they have relatively speaking like when I was at the Rose Bowl um, a couple of years ago when they were talking to Florida State fans and really laying it on like even before the game started like once the game started like I get a little bit more because, you know, they really smacked Florida State around. But before the game, like, Florida State was defending national champs. You didn't really have that much of a leg to stand on in terms of superiority. Yeah, I do think, like, the Nike thing makes it a little harder to, like, obviously I I enjoy that, like, programs can still rise up uh, from the relative obscurity of, like, the middle of the Power Five to, uh, you know, I think it's not too much of a stretch call order in a national power at that point. Um, who knows if it continues, but, you know, they have resources. But it's because of those resources. It's not like they came out of, like, you know, they just made an awesome hire, which they did, um, and Chip Kelly and Bilotti before him. Um, and even Helfrich, you know, obviously took them to a national championship. Obviously, they decided it wasn't working out. But um, I, it wasn't, like, just that. They also had Nike, which is, like, kind of, like, rooting for some, like, strappy underdog company and then realizing, oh, yeah, they had, like, $50 million of VC money backing them. It's like, oh, so... Not really, like, that scrappy an underdog. Right. <laughs> yeah, like, Oregon State, still not that scrappy either because Nike's happy to pour money over there, too. Yeah, I mean, that's the backyard, so I think it'd be, like, they probably just feel like it'd be weird not to. Right. Just not as much because, you know, look at what Oregon State's been since, uh, I don't even remember the last time Oregon State was great. I remember they beat Notre Dame in a big bowl game once. The Fiesta Bowl, <laughs> 03. Yeah, with the, uh, was that Jaquiz Rogers? I want to say yes. I think it had to be. Yeah. So that was all of our Oregon and Oregon State talk for this week. Sorry for, for making you do that. <laughs> I know you want to talk about Washington, who is uh, really fun and good. Yeah, we'll talk about Washington now because I, I need to cleanse my palate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Washington returns a hell of a lot of talent, uh, especially on offense. On defense, they do have to replace it a lot, and I think that's going to be problematic for them. I think you know Washington's defense was really kind of what kept it around games. Um, that said... There's, there's definitely some doubts in that defense as last season wore on, I think, Dan. You can correct me if I'm wrong there or you just think differently. Like, when I was at the Utah-Washington game last year in Salt Lake City, like, Utah for stretches could really push Washington around up front. And I think, like, because they're in the Pac-12, they get to avoid a little bit of the physicality that, you know, maybe a Big Ten or an SEC team would throw at them there. But, you know, Washington's still a really mean team up front. I think it's just a question now. You know, how are they going to replace a lot of the big pieces that went to the NFL uh, this past offseason? Now, luckily, again, Peterson's recruited pretty well over the last few years, and now there, there's, a nice, there's a nice group of depth uh, you know, coming up through the ranks that should, even if not replace them immediately, do a decent job of it, at least by season's end. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting defense. Obviously, they put um, they have the three huge defensive backs who are all NFL bound: uh, Kevin King, Buda Baker, and Sidney uh, Jones. Um, and I think those were all no. Uh, King was a second rounder because the Packers drafted him. I should know that, but I believe Baker and Jones were both first rounders, or they were early second rounders at worst. Yeah. Um, but they were all pretty like elite defensive backs. Uh, I think the onus of the defense shifts. Um, you have a much more experienced uh, front seven, I think, and I think the back. The back four, I think there'll be probably be talent there. Um, Peterson and uh, even Sark perform if those guys are still there. Um, both recruited really well, as we've seen if you've been following Washington's uh, NFL draft results recently. Like even when they were going like seven and five, they were putting a ton of defensive players in the NFL. Um, so I think uh, you, they do lose a couple from the front seven, but overall, I think that's pretty well uh, established. And obviously, last year uh, it wasn't the, you know the strong point of the defense, but. It could progress into that, um, and it might need to by default because the defensive bats going to be very green. Um, honestly, though, the offense is going to be so good, uh, at least on paper. Um, it lose, returns pretty much everyone but John Ross and maybe a couple linemen. 
um, it shouldn't be too much of an issue. Like, that was a super balanced offense last year. Uh, they still have uh, Dante Pettis, who was, you know, not quite the, the speedster or the game breaker as Ross, but he has a nose for the end zone. Um, obviously, they have a really good quarterback in Jake Browning, who will probably be, you know, who knows if he ends up in, in New York, but he'll be in... I think he could, and I think it's he definitely could, this, especially behind this offensive line. I mean, you look at that line; it's got like even more. I mean, we, we've talked about how much line experience Syracuse brings back. Like Washington brings back, you know, obviously more talented players, sure, but like brings back just in terms of like you know time spent in the system and, and time spent on the field brings back even more than that. Yeah, I'm looking now. I think they have two offensive uh, linemen that were all conference people last year uh, that are coming back. Um, so it's, I mean, the offense is just like, it should not, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they were a top 10 unit. Uh, I don't know where they finished last year, but they're probably around that. Um, they should be top 10, top 15, one of the top two in the Pac-12 for sure. Um, and, uh, prohibitive favorites in the North. Uh, I don't know. Do they have USC in the regular season? Yeah, uh, I want to say yes. So that'll be interesting. Um, because USC, who I'm guessing we're going to transition into here because, uh, accidental segues are great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> USC is also loaded and also has a great quarterback and also has a ton of NFL talent. Um, and obviously they're going to be like one of the trendy picks to win the title this year, probably because if you don't want to pick Alabama, um, USC hasn't done it in a while. So why not pick the, the Trojans? Well, Dan, do, do you believe the Trojans hype? No, obviously like this is a, an annual thing. I know out here even more so because, you know, we get to avoid the, the SEC noise machine a little bit. Um, in California, and so if you're hearing anything about other teams, it's usually you're either hearing about the Big Ten um, or the Pac-12, but hype's pretty uh, pretty hot and heavy here, um, and, and I hear it nationally too. So do you believe in, in, in USC, um, and, and I guess if you don't, you know, what, what could they do in the, in the early parts of the season t- to make you believe a little bit more? Um, who, what's the big, yeah, they play Texas early, play, so that's yeah, not that. They do play Texas. Yeah, that's not going to really tell me that much. Texas um, is back. Oh, yeah, Texas, Tom <laughs> Herman, year one. Definitely going to, to rattle some cages. Um, obviously, we, I think we both think Texas will be decent, but I, I'm not going to buy in a lot. They actually played their first games against Tim Lester. <laughs> oh, man. Why is Western Michigan playing USC? What a weird game. Body bag. Yeah, it's definitely a body bag, but like. That's it. It's just a paycheck. It's only, that's such a weird. That's that's a weird body bad game. Like, I guess they're probably paying a lot for it because why else? Well, if you're Western Michigan, like you can't get the Wolverines on the schedule or something. Um, I mean, I thought about going. I thought about <laughs> going to this game because like, just to see like Tim Lester's team run like a non-offense and get slapped around. <laughs> Wait, yeah, Tim Lester's offensive system is questionable. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? I, um, I if you do go, if you, if you go, let me know, and I'll mail you the XFL to Muster Guard I have, which I do have in the city with me. I, I took that with me when I moved in 2014. No, I, what I do is I would just blow it up and just post it. <laughs> try, to, try to fling it onto the field. Um, the Stanford game week two will be really telling. Uh, obviously, Stanford um, feels like a team uh, that can like blow up your stuff like early in the year because they just are so confident in what they're doing. They're going to be at a big talent gap because USC is, is pretty nasty in that regard. And Sam Darnold um, could very easily be the 20, first player of the 2018 NFL draft. I think he's probably the favorite for that. Oh, yeah, um, although yeah, I, there I, are those like weird rumors that he might come back. Which, like, more power too if he does as a college football fan. Uh, he's not maybe, not, maybe not the right decision. Yeah, I don't expect him to. Um, just, I mean, they're, they're just very, very talented. Um, Clay Helton really did himself a favor last year uh, showing up things. Because I think we probably talked on this podcast. We probably I think we joked for almost an entire podcast once about how Clay Helton was going to get fired. Um, and then that he never lost out. another game. And then yeah, I think oh no, we I mean that was a running joke for us. Yeah, he he I think ran the table after that podcast. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations, all you USC fans. Um, like what, like one and three or something? Like when we had that podcast, it was something like near that. The one and three, it, yeah. two and three, uh, yeah, and then he. It was after the did it was bad bit to Utah. Is that who? Yeah, like beat the hell out of him. Yeah. Um, I'm looking up their schedule. Yeah, it had to be after the Utah game. They lost 31-27, which was like, it was, uh, I feel, was that one of those games that was like not not even as close as it probably looked? Yeah, um, and then you and I made the case that, that he was going to go 3-9. and nine. <laughs> That worked out so well. <laughs> so in that case, Syracuse is going to go 3-9 and nine this year. 
Oh, yes, definitely. Um, 100%. Uh, I, it's interesting because I think the schedule is actually pretty friendly oh, it's uh, for USC. Friendly. Like, I they actually do not play Washington. Oh, I, I have them going unbeaten. Yeah, I was looking for the Washington name. Like, no, it doesn't exist. They play Wazoo. But, um, so after Stanford, they play Texas, who, who even if Texas is back-ish, like, USC this year should beat Texas by 10 points um, at home. Then they have at Cal. Cal is going to be Worse. maybe a mess because they're changing a lot. Justin Wilcox, I actually like the hire. Um, not for the current personnel. Not for the current personnel, and also, like, you're, you're switching from a, a offensive team that played no defense to a defensive head coach. Um, I forget, who do you hire as OC? Uh, the head coach from Eastern Washington, which is a super smart idea. I like that hire a lot. Okay, yeah. So I think they will still probably store some points, but it's going to take a bit. Uh, I mean, it was it was our, it didn't matter even if um well, and even if it's still there. And this recent class was crap. Yeah, and then they at Wazoo, which is terrifying. <laughs> um, I would never want to go to Washington State no. uh, if I had to have title hopes. Was that it, uh, what was the famous what was it seven three or whatever the final score was game? Oh my god! Was, uh, was that at Wazoo? Had to be right. Ten seven or seven three. It was one of those. I remember watching it at a bar in LA and just like seeing seeing half the bar be like disgusted SC fans and the other half being like UCLA fans, just like chortling in the back. Dan, you muted. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. 